OddCert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay respect to elders, past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the OzCert podcast, Share Today, Save Tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this episode, I'm joined by Yaron Vanderham and Sean Richardson. We chat about the importance of ethics in incident response and the recently launched code of ethics they've been working on with Ethics First. As experienced cybersecurity practitioners, they bring an interesting perspective on this important topic. We'll then get an update from my co-host Beck and OzCert principal analyst extraordinaire, Mark Carey-Smith, about ethics and the program at this year's OzCert conference. We look forward to bringing you the best of the Australian cybersecurity industry with fascinating insights, great stories from the field, and lessons you can take back to your workplace to better protect your organization's critical assets. So thanks for joining us today. I've got Sean and Yuren who are going to talk to us a little bit about ethics first. But first, can we start, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what it is that you do? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm uh, talking to you here out of Seattle, Washington today. I run the Product Security Incident Response Team at NVIDIA, and I'm also on the board at FIRST, the form of incident response and security teams, which is the organization that kind of where, where, where ethics first came from. Amazing. Thanks. And Jeroen? Yeah. So my name is Jeroen. I'm, uh, I'm in Utrecht in the Netherlands. I'm at the National Cybersecurity Center of the Netherlands, where I'm a senior researcher. And I'm also, uh, one day a week, I work as an associate professor at the University of Twente. I do research into incident response, ethics and cybersecurity, and I'm also one of the co-chairs of the Ethics First SIG. So you both kind of come to this, it sounds like you both come and come to cybersecurity from a reasonably technical background. You know, incident response is, is a thing where, you know, it's not something that you can do without understanding at least some of the technical background about what goes in. But, but what draw you into the into the ethics side of things? You know, why why have a code of ethics for incident response? Why do we need this? I think for me, it came from just having been in the industry for a long time and having personally had experiences where I, you know, either was on a team that things were a bit questionable or I was asked to do things that I felt were a bit questionable and really having no no backing on how would I go and ask about these things, especially in first starting out in my career, you don't feel like you can speak up when you're being asked to do certain things. And so I was kind of fascinated when I heard uh, the first ethics SIG was working on this and uh, was very excited to, uh, to get to join them and, and help out. I'm really curious, what could be questionable? Like incident <laughs> response isn't about like, I mean, just get the business back up and running. You know, I mean, with people out there trying to back hack bad guys, I mean, what was going on? So one of the, the, the allow me to answer that. The, one of the things that got me into into ethics is I did my research. So I'm an I'm an academic, and at one point I did a research on measuring the the impact of a website blockade. So the Pirate Bay website was blocked in the Netherlands, and I tried to measure whether the, whether the blockade was effective or not. And everybody knew it wasn't, but there was no objective proof in in saying that. And I started doing it. And then I measured uh, and recorded all of the 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 IP addresses, which actually isn't even to, to record that. But still, I had to measure and record them in order to 
trace back and, and, and find the results, whether that was effective or not. So as a, and this was 10 years ago, and there was no, not even a, an, an ethics committee for computer science at the university back then. So I started asking around and the only one who would, was willing to answer my question was a lawyer. And the answer is predictable, of course. But was the answer I, if you're a lawyer, just don't get caught? No, the answer was no. No, we're not <laughs> going to do this. We don't do this. We don't do this. And so that got me into, and fortunately, my professor defended the research and saw the, the relevance of it. And, and, and later I got into a discussion with an ethicist and we did a, a full ethics analysis of, of the whole case, describing the pros and the cons, all of the dilemmas involved, etc. And then the, the, we finally concluded that it was permissible from an ethics standpoint, from an ethical analysis standpoint. And that pulled me down the rabbit hole of ethics uh, and computer science and then later cybersecurity. That's really interesting because you have a conflict in that. There's an automatic conflict that I hear is, which is it's ethical to do something, but it's not legally permissible to do something. Yes. Um, I mean, do you, is that a thing that you kind of encounter regularly when you're looking at cybersecurity incident response? Is it, do you often think that the, the right thing to do is not the thing you're allowed to do? Is that, is that, a, a, is that a common experience for both of you? I think I think so. I mean, for vulnerability disclosure, this is this is regular. Yeah. What about Sean? What were you saying? Yeah, I, I agree. I think there are there are times that things come up, you know, with when how you're dealing with people, you know, accepting vulnerability dis disclosure information from somebody from a country that maybe you're not supposed to be having contact with, talking to somebody who has broken your terms of service and, you know, wanting to get that information from them and not, you know, send lawyers after them. So, yeah, it does come up pretty frequently. So, I mean, vulnerability disclosures, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting one because there's almost an accepted practice across the cybersecurity industry of how it's done. It, I mean, and I say kind of, only with the, the limitations you've kind of already described. No one's gone out and said, this is how all vulnerability disclosures are always going to happen. But there's, there seems to be this kind of common thing that if you're a white hat or a gray hat who finds a vulnerability is that you notify the party involved if you're lucky, there's a bug bounty. If you're not so lucky, you do it out of the goodness of your heart. You let them know. You give them a period of time to respond. Might be mm -hmm. 15, 30 days, something like that. And then you only out them if they don't respond in that time. So it's, it, there's, a, there's a kind of process out there that's fluffy for the good guys. Um, but as you say, sometimes who you're speaking with is not someone you're allowed to speak with. And I imagine there's times where competitors get this kind of intel and decide how they're going to use it as well. I mean, are they the, is that, that's one area, I guess. So we included the duty of vulnerability disclosure in the code of ethics in trying to promote this and trying to get teams at least to, to facilitate the process. So Sean, I mean, one of the things that you guys did for, your, for this code of ethics was there's a, there's a base group of 12 principles. Do you perhaps want to talk a little bit about where those came from and we've talked a bit about vulnerability disclosure, but there's obviously more to it than that. And also, you know, maybe one of the big ones that if someone said, I'm new to this field, I've never really thought about the ethics of what I do in incident response. What are the, you know, the, the two or three big things I've really got to think about? And if I get these right, the rest will kind of happen or get, happen on its own. That's a very good question. I, and I, I will be curious because I, I, Jeroen has actually been in the SIG longer than I have. But for me, it's the duty of trustworthiness, you know, 
saying what you're going to do and doing what you're going to say. The duty to acknowledge, you know, information going back and forth and letting people know that, yes, you've heard them and you do respond to them. And that's not going into a black hole someplace. And I think the third for me is the duty to team health, you know, taking care of your people, taking care and making sure they're that not every day is is firefighting day and that that's not a typical day, making sure they're getting the training they need, making sure they get the breaks, making sure they have the information they need to be empowered and be successful. Those, those in my mind are kind of the top three. Yeah. The, the, so the duty of trustworthiness is the, is the basic one. That's, that's the one that we build out of and we say, this is why we, we are doing this. And you want to achieve that level of trust, both yeah, in the community, but also extending outwards from the community to, to see that we we have this in control and we think i think the duty of confidentiality is a, is is a very important one they're, they're all pretty pretty important and they're all different reasons of why they're important that's so, also okay. why we didn't number them you both mentioned trust and, and trust when you talk about trustworthiness and openness and, and all those sorts of those principles they're very very important and they're very human qualities they're not they're not technical qualities at all no. they might be implemented through technical tools in some cases like you know having a you know secure chat forum or having a, a transparent process that people can check in on to see what's going on in, in the particular incident response and whatnot one of the things you talk about is also public trust it's trust about what's going on outside the the chain of, of incident response how important is that and how does the code of ethics promote that? So this is one that a former co-chair actually brought up, Tom Millar. He brought up the idea of uh, professionalization. And this is, a, this is a process that a profession goes through as it develops. And there's been, actually been some research on this. And one of the, one of the prime elements in the, profession, in the steps towards professionalization is a code of ethics. And a code of ethics allows you to 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 state as a profession where you are in in the and what it is that you do and what it is that you don't do and and it creates a sort of predictability and and it it describes what what you see as your contribution to society can you talk to me perhaps a bit little bit about adoption of the code of ethics are you seeing this accepted and used by certs and by professional organizations around the world or is there, you know, is it actually, do you see a, a behavioral change that's following this? I mean, you talk about professionalization of the industry. Is How is that code of ethics actually aiding that? And are, are we seeing direct evidence of how that works? I think it will. So the way this was developed is we came up with the, with the code. And then we have been working on and hope to release uh, later in the year, the case studies around this. So a lot of this is to get teams to think about these things beforehand. So this has been introduced to the community. So they are aware and have looked and provided some feedback. The next step is for us to go through and start asking for folks who are willing to sign up and say, yes, we support this. So with you know the situation as it was, we, we haven't actually gotten to go out and physically start talking to folks about, you know, hey, here's what we should do and, and, and get more in-person feedback. And I think that's going to be the next step. But, you know, I think if you take a look at these things and just start even thinking about them, and I do this with my team to some extent, and I know others do as well. If you think about these things ahead of time before you're in the midst of the, you know, the vulnerability or the incident or whatever it is, you're not trying to solve for both at the same time. If we flash forward a little bit, 
and pretend that it's 2026 or let's be ambitious and say, you know, 2030. And this code of ethics has been out in the wild for a while now. People have had the chance to talk about it, discuss it. I imagine that over that kind of time, it would be refined. Would you expect any changes in the cybersecurity industry to come about because of this code of ethics? Do you think, or do you think people are kind of doing the right thing most of the time now, and this is formalizing the right thing? I think most of them, we've written them in a way, in a generic way. It's not completely intentional, but it's probably the way that we did this is that they're sort of, and I can't really see any that I, I would think would change the, the first. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, as you, you say, so one of the reasons that we, that we started to write this, as I've mentioned in a, in a previous talk, is that we wanted to make the implicit explicit. So, I mean, it used to be that the, the incident response in the cybersecurity world was small and everybody knew each other. And once you have that small group of people together, you sort of form an implicit code of everybody knows what, what the, the limits are. And if you cross them, then you get a nudge from somebody in the community. And as a cybersecurity industry, we've grown tremendously. We've grown far beyond uh, that that's going to work. And this is why we started to write this code of ethics in order to make that explicit and to make those kind of behavior to, pr to promote that. But it's also that we didn't write them as absolutes. So we, we wrote them as advice. We acknowledge that they can conflict with each other and they often do, but it just gives you a vocabulary to talk about this and to have a conversation with a colleague. And then usually through this kind of conversation, you come up with a solution and you see a way out of the dilemma. You said something really interesting in the middle of that. Um, and I'm not sure if you've yeah. realized how interesting it is, but you talk about them being, sometimes being contradictory or in conflict. Yeah. Um, Perhaps, Sean, can you give me an example of where the ethical discussion around disclosure may be a conflict? I think it depends. There are lots of circumstances where that can happen. You know, it's real easy for us to look at the large vendors and the large participants and they have their, you know, their code of whatever posted and here's how we handle vulnerability disclosure. But that's just a small percentage of all the folks who are having to deal with security incidents at this point. So what do you do if you are trying to be a, a good security team and you find a vulnerability in someone else's code and you send them information and you hear nothing back? And this is something that affects your customers directly, but you're not able to get this vendor or this partner to respond. You know, do you say something? Do you, you know, knowing that your customers are potentially affected and in danger? I mean, let's face it, one person finds something, it doesn't mean somebody else can't. So it can very easily have conflict indeed. I, I find this whole area really fascinating. I think ultimately technical problems always get, I think you apply time, money and expertise and engineers fix technical problems, whether they're security engineers or, you know, pen testers looking for things or whatever, you know, technical problems always get resolved, I think, as long as people really want to solve them. You know, we've, we've solved the, the problem of a coronavirus vaccine in roughly a year, when in the previous almost 100 or 80 years or so of vaccination, we'd never made one for a coronavirus ever. And yet, yeah, the once the motivation was there, we magically found the time, money, and research effort to make that happen pretty quickly. Um, so but, on one that, hand, we can, we can solve complex problems when we want to, but ethics is a very different thing because it's, it's not a finite problem. I mean, it deals no. with humans and 
different um, perspectives of the world and so forth. How do you kind of balance that? I mean, because ultimately this is, ethics is an unsolvable problem because it's such a strong cultural element to this. Uh, and it's going own, to change. Your own, can you... Yeah, I mean, it's going to change. Ethics has changed and, and acceptable behavior has changed over the last 20, 30 years. And it's going to change and that's not a problem. But I do want to, to contradict a little bit of what you were saying. I I see that there that there's a large trend towards what I call techno solution and, and trying to, to find technical problems to all uh, technical solutions for all kinds of problems. And that it just isn't always possible. And ethics is a very good example. There's no way that you're going to find a technical solution to an ethics problem. And this is true for cybersecurity. This is true for AI. This is true for, for any kind of ethics. There's going to be tools that help you, but it, it's not going to give you the answer. In my experience, Actually, the last few years, I've seen my cybersecurity work is less and less technical. And and I mean, I'm, I'm doing research in, in uh, cybersecurity and incident response, and I see it as more of a social sciences. There's technical aspects, sure, but there's social sciences, there's political science. It's, it's a very diverse field. Do you see a, a future where an ethicist will become a almost mandatory part or a mandatory service that's accessed by organizations when they're not just dealing with cyber, but obviously you've mentioned a whole lot of other fields, ethical minefields, such as AI, for example. Absolutely. I'm already starting to see that where, you know, as people are looking at AI models and what is that going to look like and how do you secure them? How do you utilize them? How do you take data from one company into another, into your own model? There, it's opening a whole Pandora's box of questions. And so having somebody with a, a legal and ethics background to be able to help not, not give you the answer, but help you do, to divine the, the conversation so that you can come to that which your organization can stand behind and say, yes, you know, we do things like this and this is what we stand by. I think it's going to be very important. I could talk about this sort of stuff all day. I love it. I think it's, I think technical problems are always fun to solve, but you get to, there's always an end. Like you solve the problem and you move on to the next technical problem. But this, we're talking about humans now. And because we're a constantly evolving species, we keep creating new conundrums to solve. So I, I think when we start thinking about ethics, I think it's an absolutely fascinating field. Perhaps just to, to wrap this up, I want to ask each of you, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to start their career in cybersecurity? I think find Find the area you're passionate about and know it's going to change. I did not get into cybersecurity until I was in my early 30s. I was formerly a veterinary technician and had a couple of office jobs prior. I'd never really played around with computers at all. I don't have that background. But don't let someone tell you no. Go ahead and apply and go out and meet people. Talk to people who are doing the kinds of things you want to do and, uh, and start just experimenting. I would say that people should be aware that cybersecurity is not a technical field anymore. There's there's lots of places that we don't we need non-technical people to help improve cybersecurity. There's political science, there's behavioral aspects, there's lots of different aspects that are that are not a technological problem in cybersecurity. And uh, so we need more diverse people, and we need also need people who are technology technologists that they become aware of the, the wider field that it is. Well, that's been great, guys. Thank you so much for your time this morning, this evening, this afternoon, as the case may be. We, this has been a, an interesting podcast just to put together because we've had to deal with the, um, 
the one thing that technology can't fix, and that is time, because we live on this um, spherical planet. I assume none of you believe in the flat Earth theory, um, <laughs> because we live on this spherical planet where the sun comes up at different times for all of us. So it's about an hour and a half or so away from coming up for me, but I know it's it's, it's well and truly set for your own, and it's probably almost, almost. at its apex for Sean. <laughs> so, well, thank, thank you for you having for, us, Anthony. It's been fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Now it's over to the team from OzCert. Beck chats with Mark Carey-Smith about ethics in the upcoming OzCert conference. Thanks, Anthony. Excited to be back with you for another month. Um, today, I'm joined by Mark Carey-Smith, our wonderful principal analyst at OzCert. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm great. Thanks, Beck. That's good. I'm really excited because I know this is a topic that Mark is very excited about as well. So I think we're going to have a great conversation today. I really want to thank our friends from the Ethics First Committee. The Ethics First SIG, they were great presenters at last year's conference and yeah, very graciously recorded the podcast for us as well. Just want to, I guess, revisit a couple of the themes that came out of their conversation with you, Mark. I think there's some obvious takeaways there that we kind of all went, well, we know that, but it's it's a great timely reminder. And it's I think it's good that they've kind of put a a more formal process around some of these things but I guess the first one that I'd really like to look at is yeah there is no technical solution that you can apply to ethics so you know our industry's changed you know about a decade ago I think most people have gone well cybersecurity is technical even I did the same thing but now there's so much more to it and you'll never solve the solution of ethics with technical solutions so what do you think of that idea yeah that's totally true I mean as Bruce Schneier is often quoted as saying, if you think cybersecurity is a technical problem, then you don't understand the problem and you don't understand the solutions. I may have got that wrong, but (laughs) essentially that's what he says. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's, I was lucky enough to actually see the presentation at last year's conference and it was really fascinating to me and so quite refreshing in a way to hear Cybersecurity obviously has far-reaching impacts and we like to stress the importance of cybersecurity, but there's many more far-reaching implications to cybersecurity than just an organisation and its performance. We have impacts upon very broad societal and it's important to look at ethics from a broad brush perspective and also from a quite specific perspective and that's what the Ethics First Code covers some big picture stuff and some very specific stuff as well. For me, you know, I guess also it's been around a long time, right? So I think hearing them talk about the, you know, the origins of, of our industry and how it was very small, there was a lot of unspoken rules. There was the way that people communicated, what they shared, what they didn't share. And I, it wasn't really a documented process. It was just relationships and community that had established these things. So you can, it's very obvious there was a need. The industry has grown, it's changed. Um, so it's really interesting to, you know, I think we do the same thing in our own lives, right, with ethics. We, there's a lot of unspoken. So it's nice to see it done in this way, but it's still, you know, broad enough that it's not pinning you down to a very specific detail. What, what are your thoughts on that side of things? Well, there's, there's a, I have a couple of thoughts. One is that what you kind of touched on in relation to culture, and that is that when organisations or teams are small, it's much easier to see what the established norms are. And culture, obviously, is that are the things that we say and do on a regular basis that, that are important to us. You, you almost interact at every layer at that point, right? That's right. And so 
it's much easier in small teams and small organizations to have a clear ethical set of norms but the larger a team or the larger an organization gets the more important it is to codify what's important to us and to, and to make it clear this is what we stand for and this is what we won't stand for there's that great saying about the behavior you walk past is the behavior that you accept yeah. and codifying ethical behavior in a way that works for individuals for organizations and society at large i think is a really important element to having something to aim for and having some clear reminders to us about ways that we need to behave to make everybody's lives better. I see that a lot in Osset as a great example. You know, being not-for-profit, being in this mode of helping members and, and I guess essentially just operating on the greater good. So you naturally attract people with some similar values, not all values, of course, but yeah, there's you can see those correlations of, of how people communicate, how they like to, to work with each other. That's true. We're very lucky to work for a non-profit organisation within an institution that's focused to education. And, yeah. and it's pretty easy to find values that match personal values in that context. It's easy for me anyway. So, yeah, I think... I. I I'd struggle in organisations where the organisational mission, and going back again to cybersecurity is meant to support organisational objectives, it should be an empowering function. But what if you're empowering a function that actually sells arms, for example, or maybe is in the business of gambling or tobacco? Everybody's values are different. I'm not judging anybody for making choices to work for those organisations. doesn't suit my values, but... I'm lucky to be able to have those choices to make, I guess. Not everybody has that choice. Yeah, yeah. I think those ones are, are very natural here at also with with what you're saying. You know, it doesn't really clash with anyone's moral high ground, right? Let's hope not. <laughs> well, yeah, then we're in bigger trouble. Yeah, so I, I do love, I guess, the theme overall is really about people, which is what we keep saying. And, you know, people, I think, are, are starting to listen to that idea is that it's not just technology and cybersecurity, and it's not just process. There's the, the people aspect, which is so important, and it seems to be reaching into so many different areas. So I'm really excited that, and segueing here, heads up, that the conference is really focused on that as well. You know, while we do have a lot of technical content in the program and tutorials, we've got a lot focused on people. And I'm really excited. I think that balance has really come about more recently, and we've got some great people that we can work with, people again, that are experts in these fields. So tutorial wise i did a quick count but there's like half a dozen tutorials across the two days that are all focused about people worth noting gary gaskell's back doing cybersecurity risk management which is a, a staple we can never give it up everybody we always get about 100 people register for his tutorial and and he updates the content year on year so if you need a refresher that's also a good opportunity ben demarco with conducting cyber tabletops is also a great one but mark here is actually doing one on leading cybersecurity assurance can you give us any little segues into what you'll be covering in your tutorial yes so myself and alex webling running an all-day tute on leading cybersecurity assurance and the reason we came up with this course and uh, last year was the first time we ran it, was to help people who are aspiring to be in leadership roles in cybersecurity or are in leadership roles, to help them come up with some practical ways to provide assurance to stakeholders that what they're doing is an effective 
form of risk management. But we also talk about ways to effectively communicate within an organisation, handy tips in relation to managing teams, things about a little bit of behavioural economics, which Alex and I are both really interested in and to help people make good decisions. And the great thing about that course is the degree of interaction we get from the participants because we certainly don't know everything and we make that pretty clear. I feel like I know something less every day sometimes. But the hearing from the other participants and their good suggestions for this or that is some of the most valuable content in that course. And it's really just a joy to run shoots at Osset. I used to love and I still love being on the participant end of the tutorial. In fact, I'm doing a a shoot this year on design thinking, which looks fascinating. I'm really excited about that one. And that's from another part of our UQ family from Ivano. And I won't even pretend to pronounce his very Italian surname. Bonji Ivani. Nice work. He says it so brilliantly, it's hard to imitate. But I, I think that's going to be a really interesting tutorial. And I was so pleased when I saw that come through the, the call for papers. I was like, oh, that's going to be a great one. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> it was great to be on the committee. This is my first time being on the committee. So it was great to look at, at the amazing range and depth of participants people that want to present people that want to deliver tutorials it's just really flattering in a way and when I saw that shoot I went a this is super super interesting and b I really want to do this and c please don't schedule my shoot at the same time (laughs) I mean good thing is I knew someone in in the in the scheduling program that I could call a a favor down for so yes I'm really looking forward to that I have I have done a, a workshop with Ivano in relation to data governance ethics, and I love the way he facilitates a group, so I'm really looking forward to this full-day course. Awesome. I guess that's one of the advantages of our wonderful new venue at the Star. We have got eight tutorial options each day of Tuesday and Wednesday, so pretty much something for everybody, and they are free to register with your conference registration. So a really great way to finish the week conference with networking, your conference presentations, and some real learnt skills from those tutorials. It's a good balance. Yeah, absolutely. And I shouldn't not mention <laughs> the mental health first aid course is also back. It is a two-day course, but you know I know there's a lot of people that don't have access to that normally, so we do like to be able to run that, and it's something we're very passionate about at Osset. So I guess partnering with that, I've been working with Blue Hackers, which have got some great ideas. So we will have actually a psychologist on site at the conference that people can make anonymous bookings with and spend some time with them. I'd hate to think that that would be the barrier to that people have no access to a psychologist or can't afford one so it seems like a really simple solution for us to be able to do that on the Thursday and Friday as well. Yeah it's so lovely that 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 they've asked to partner with us and that sounds like a really good resource that people will hopefully find beneficial. It's nice to do something actionable rather than just talking about mental health there's actually a driving force there which is great. Yeah yeah and thanks very much to Simon Harvey again for leading that the mental health first aid course. It's a lot of work, is my understanding. It is. And Simon's a champion for that for that area. Awesome. So I guess we've covered tutorials, but there is a couple of presentations that tie into our theme there as well. So calling out JP Hayward, and I think this will be really interesting, his presentation is Rethinking Your Capabilities, How Imposter Syndrome Might Be Impacting You. And I know there's a lot of people in our industry with imposter syndrome, so I think that could be a really interesting session. Yes, yeah, I'm looking forward to that myself, having uh, experienced a little bit of imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon no, in my yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm looking forward to some insights from JP. Awesome. 
And I guess the last thing I'd like to mention is we do have a new um, partner from CyberSec people working with us this year, which is great. Uh, and they'll be running a careers village. So I guess like we've done in the past, they'll be there during Thursday and Friday to answer questions you have about salary, job market. But then we'll also have lunchtime presentations from them. So some really great topics about how to attract the right people in the industry and how to prepare your resume. So some really hands-on things to, to help people. That will be a really good opportunity as well. Yeah, that's great. Something for everyone. Yeah. And lots of coffee too. Absolutely. It is all about the coffee. Don't you worry that barista will be there all day Thursday and Friday. Well, as long as that's your beverage of choice, we do have bubble tea back as well. Thank you so much for joining me again, Mark. My absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, looking forward to seeing lots of people at the conference. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the OzCert podcast. Thanks to our guests, Euron and Sean, and a special thank you to my co-host, Beck. We'll be back next month with new guests and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. And hopefully we'll also see you at the OzCert conference in May. If you want to know more about OzCert, please be sure to visit ozcert.org.au.